you uh, regularly hear me uh, talk about Christianity rightly understood and rightly lived as being countercultural. That means uh, to follow Jesus is to be out of step with the prevailing world, <clears throat> the prevailing culture. And we are called, yes, to be in the world, um, but not of the world. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in just a moment. In John chapter 17, Jesus himself reminds his followers that like him, they are not of the world. They do not have the world's priorities and the, world, and the world's values. And Paul, as we've seen for several weeks now, has made this very clear in Romans chapter 12. Um, just, just the two, first two verses, which are, which are extraordinary and some of Paul's uh, most well-known verses. Paul has told us and we've learned that by the mercies of God, we've, we've emphasized that, haven't we? Because we have to, because it is by the mercies of God that we live. And Paul tells us that by the mercies of God, we are, we are capable and we are to offer our bodies. And we, we saw that bodies means the whole person. Uh, we can't divide ourselves up, but our, the whole person. Uh, we are to offer uh, the whole person to God as an act of reflective worship, uh, that our minds are engaged and that this is the right thing, if I can say the logical thing, for a Christian, a follower of Christ to do, to offer himself to the Lord. And that is an act of worship. Paul has also told us negatively that we are not to be conformed to this world. We should be a little bit out of step. We should feel a certain degree of homelessness, whether it's in society or whether it's in politics, whatever sphere we might be talking about, there ought to be a sense of unrest, if you please, not completely comfortable here. As we saw last week, that the, the Bible describes us as aliens, as exiles, strangers, and that we are to take those, those uh, identifiers as uh, rather serious and so not be conformed uh, to this world. And then Paul pivots, remember we, we talked about this, but instead, instead of being conformed, he says, be transformed, be trans, be morphed. We talked about it being metamorphosis, be morphed by the renewing of our minds. We're going to see just how important the mind is for Paul. It, it, we shouldn't separate it so much from the entirety of our being, from our hearts, because they're intimately connected. Uh, as we have said, we are embodied souls, or to say it in reverse, we are ensouled bodies, and they can't be divided uh, until death, uh, really. So Paul is, is persisting with regard to the importance of the mind, and we talked about the importance of getting good things into our mind. Remember we said gigo, garbage in, garbage out. Um, and so uh, we want to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And Paul's going to stay along that theme in the verses that we're going to look at this morning as we offer our bodies and our minds wholeheartedly to God. And we do that in a way that's in accord with his good and pleasing and perfect will. Uh, this is all by way of summarizing Romans 12, 1 and 2. It's, it's pretty big, isn't it? It's holistic. Nothing about our lives are apart from the sovereignty of God. And I, I take great comfort in, in knowing that. So today in verses three to eight, as you just heard Kate read, uh, Paul, Pastor Paul, uh, is going to give us further guidance on exactly how to do this, on exactly what it means to offer ourselves to God, and to be renewed 
They're transformed by the renewing of our minds. He's going to do this through two themes. We're only going to look at one today, and part two will be uh, next week if the good Lord is willing. He's going to show us this through two, uh, two, two key themes. The first one is personal humility, and that's in verse 3 of Romans chapter 12. And then in verses 4 to 8, personal humility moves very smoothly into corporate unity. I want you to get that formula down, uh, though it's not a hocus-pocus kind of formula. Those are important words to keep in your notes in the coming weeks. Personal humility leads to corporate unity. Implication, if the church is not unified, it's probably because uh, there is a lack of humility among the members of the body of Christ. And so what Paul, and even more importantly, God, wants us to understand uh, in these coming weeks uh, through Romans 12, 3 to 8, is uh, personal humility and corporate unity and how those two things are weighted together, all under the big umbrella, by the mercies of God, that we might be able to offer ourselves as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to the Lord. So let's this morning, very simply, Look at what Paul says in verse 3 about personal humility. And then if the Lord is willing, next week we'll, I'll show you from the scriptures how personal humility flows into corporate unity in verses 4 to 8. Humility, watch this. This was an eye-opener for me. Something that I, I, I had learned a while back, but it, it, came, it, you know, it came forward uh, in this past week as I gave uh, further consideration and study of this. Humility back in the day, back in first century secular Rome, was, was not a virtue. In fact, humility was frowned upon, very strongly so. So for Paul to introduce the idea of humility in first century, the first century Rome, uh, was really in and of itself countercultural. If you were a humble person, you stuck out in, in first century Rome. It's sort of like today, where there's such a lack of civility and such a high value placed on personal pride. Uh, to be a humble person, a biblically humble person, is countercultural. Yes, it's to invite scorn and uh, perhaps even a, a certain degree of danger, but uh, give me some time and we'll unpack this and show you what it is that God intends for his living sacrifices that are holy and pleasing to him. It was countercultural. It was frowned upon in first century secular Rome. Let me read for you this very short paragraph as to how one writer, Michael Bird, is an Australian uh, Bible teacher, uh, and he has written a, a, an excellent commentary on the book of Romans. Here's what he has to say about humility in its first century context. Humility was for inferiors. Remember that social life in ancient Rome was fiercely competitive, and it was consumed with the pursuit of honor and status. Raising yourself above others was actually the name of the game. I read that and I said, thank God we don't have any, um, any more of that in our culture nowadays. Thank God New York City is nothing like first century Rome. We don't know anything about pride and the pursuit of honor and status and competition and being consumed with those things. Whew, so glad we're out of that day and age. Obviously, I'm being mildly sarcastic here this morning because, as I've said repeatedly in our study of Romans, New York City and first century Rome really line up in a lot of ways, particularly with the values and, and the ethos uh, of those uh, environments. Uh, you could almost take out the word Rome and put in New York City, and it would work exactly the same. Humility, 
you're inferior if you're weak. Um, and certainly the social life around here, as we know, is, is all caught up in honor and status and raising yourself up above others. So with all, all kidding aside, it is into a culture like that and ours today that Pastor Paul speaks. And this is what he says when he opens his mouth. Romans chapter 12, verse 3, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think instead with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So here's Paul kind of cutting across the grain of first century uh, Rome, kind of cutting across the grain of 21st century Staten Island as well. He continues to do it. And though he possesses the authority of an apostle, he continues in pastoral mode. I said continue, because you remember when we looked at 12.1, Romans 12.1, we saw that Paul, with all his authority as an apostle, says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God. Paul's being very pastoral here. He's not coming with the hammer. He's appealing to them. He, he wants to be winsome. He wants to win them. He wants to see the importance of the application of the gospel that he has so carefully outlined. And so he has this authority, but uh, in humility, he's laying it aside. In fact, he says, for the grace given to me, I say. Notice the little word for there. You, you know that I like to point those things out. It's a connector. So verse three, though perhaps divided in our English translations, verse three is tied very closely to verses one and two. What Paul is basically signaling to us is that, okay, I've, I've introduced my topic to you in one and two. Now I'm going to unpack it for you. Now I'm going to show you some, some very simple, straightforward, practical ways that these kinds of things that I described in 12, one and two can be lived out. And I'm so grateful for Paul. He's so great at doing that. And that we need to have ears to hear what it is that he exactly wants to get across to us. So he says, for the grace, by the grace given to me. In other words, Paul's saying, you know, I'm, I'm not a bully. Uh, he's, he said, I, I am a recipient of God's grace, and I know that I, I have been saved by grace, and I know that I am sustained by grace. And it is by that grace that I want to talk to you, my Roman brothers and sisters. A place to remind you now that he's, he's not been to uh, up to this point in time, but he wants, but he wants to get there. So Paul realizes that he's been given grace, and therefore he must act out of that grace as well. Let me just show you one place in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 1 and verse 5. Let me show you how important grace was to Paul. This is the introduction to Romans now, verse 5 of Romans chapter 1. Listen to the role that grace plays in his apostleship. Romans chapter 1 and verse 5. Um, he is a, a follower of Jesus Christ through whom we have received grace and apostleship. Now watch, not to be proud, not to be puffed up, not to beat people down, but instead he's received grace and the authority of the apostle to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all of the nations. So right there in the opening paragraph, Paul's really laying it out. He says, look, he says, yes, I'm an apostle, but I'm an apostle by the grace of God. And what is the goal of that grace given to me in my apostleship? It's so that you hearers, you followers of Jesus, will walk in the obedience of faith. 
and that the name of Christ might be exalted, might be lifted up there in Rome, but in the outermost regions of all of the earth as well. And it's exactly the same for you and me this very day. So this grace-filled apostle comes to us, and he says, by the grace given to me, I say to you. And it's very similar to what he said, I appeal to you. He's doing the same thing now. And to whom? To whom is he saying these things? Okay, we, we get it that Paul's in pastoral mode. He's not coming with the, the bully club. So we want to ask next, following this verse, who is he speaking to? Does he have somebody specifically in mind? I, I don't think he does. He says, he says, for by the grace given to me, I say, see the words there with me in verse three? I say to everyone among you, so we know we've got Jew and Gentile tensions in Rome. We're going to see it in a big way in Romans 14 and 15. Those two chapters are given over to this ongoing tete-a-tete, if you please, between the weak and the strong. And they're both lacking humility, and they're both prideful, and they're both status-seeking. And Paul, before he gets there and gets more specific, is now going to lay out a, a, a broad agenda here. And he's going to say, I'm speaking by grace because I've been saved by grace, and I'm speaking to everyone among you. What does that mean for you and me? It means that as though Paul was sitting right here alongside of me, he's also speaking to us because we're part of that everyone in the church of God. So we've got a grace-filled apostle through, we hope, a grace-filled pastor, a mouthpiece for the living God, speaking to each and every one of us. It's not a word for a select few. He's not saying, I, I, I see Phoebe or I, I see Silas. He's saying, I want everybody in these house churches to hear this word. It's a word to the whole church, which is to say it's a word to you and to me. And this is all, as I've just mentioned, in anticipation of the, um, the, the deeper into the weeds conversation he's going to have with the so-called weak and the so-called strong in Romans chapters 14 and 15. So we have the grace-filled apostle speaking to everyone. The next question, very simply, and to finish the verse is, well, what is the message? What is their message? grace-filled apostle that you want to say with to everyone. And this is the back half of verse 3 of Romans chapter 12. To everyone among you, I say, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. So here we have this again. There's this not, like he said in 12.2, do not be conformed. And then he says, be transformed. And now he's doing the same thing again here in verse 3. We are not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think, but instead we are to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure or the standard of faith that God has assigned. So you see that don't do this, instead do this. And I'm grateful for that. Paul just doesn't wave his finger and say, don't do that. He says, this is unbecoming of a follower of Christ. Let's do this instead. And we can because we've been transformed by the renewing of our minds. And so Paul says to everyone, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. This very practical, very concise definition of the biblical virtue of humility, the way to become a living sacrifice, the way to renew your mind. And it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? If we're thinking biblically, I, I can't offer myself as a living sacrifice to God if I'm proud, if I'm all about me. I can't, I can't be in the process of changing 
of renewing my mind. If I'm digging in, I'm saying, no, it's only my way or the highway. So Christianity is all about change. No one ever arrives, whether you're just new in the faith or whether you're, whether you're aging in the faith. The call to humility is fresh every day for you and for me. It's, it's a, it's a self-denial and a turning over to the life of Christ lived in us and through us because we've been crucified with him along the way. Now, let's, let's be careful here because I've done plenty of counseling in my life and I, I know uh, enough psychology to realize that certain personality types uh, will hear, uh, okay, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought and they'll immediately belittle themselves. They'll immediately put themselves down. They'll be falsely self-effacing. They'll think that there's nothing good about them and so forth. And another personality type who's stronger will say, yeah, I want to find those kinds of people. I want to find people who think little of themselves because I want to take advantage of them. I want to get what I want out of them because they have such a low view of themselves. All that to say is that this is definitely not what Paul is teaching when he calls us to a right view of ourselves. He's not calling us to belittle ourselves. He's not calling us for what modern psychology calls low self-esteem. This is not what Paul is, Paul is doing. It's a mind that's transformed by the word of God and knows better that God does not view us as a doormat, as, as a milk toast, if, if you please. So we have to be very careful here to think biblically about this and not bring in modern categories that tell us that we're good for nothing, that we're doormats, that we just need to roll over. No, but it also means that we are not our own. We've been bought with a price. Christ is living his life through us. And Paul's view of the renewed person, and I hope your view as well, is much more robust. Remember, Paul's example now is Philippians, is, is Jesus himself in Philippians chapter 2. Would you turn there with me? Philippians chapter 2. This is one of Paul's prison epistles. He wrote it while in prison. And shockingly, it, it, in one way, it's shockingly that uh, this, is his, this is the letter that's filled with joy. So this prison-bound apostle writing a letter of joy, and he wants to show us that Jesus is our model of humility. Look with me, if you would, please, at Philippians chapter 2 and beginning in verse 1. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy, now watch this, by being of the same mind, it doesn't mean we're robots, but Paul says unity, a mark of the spirit, a mark of the true Christian community is that they are unified. They're not backbiting. They're not gossiping. They're not demanding their own ways. They're not leaving because they don't like something that's going on, unless, of course, it's immoral or heretical. Having the same love, being in full accord, a full accord and of one mind. And now verse three, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more, more significant than yourselves. Ask yourself the question with me. What kind of revolution would occur in the churches of Jesus Christ if we took that one verse to heart? If we took it literally? 
And starting today, we looked across the table or across the aisle, and we considered with with renewed a renewed mind and healthy uh, biblical identity, we thought of others as more significant than ourselves. Marriages would be revolutionized. Parenting would be revolutionized. Um, church relationships would be revolutionized. It'd be an amazing thing if we took this one verse to heart. He goes on in verse four to show us the example, the model of Jesus. Verse four, Philippians two, let each of you look not only to his own interest. You see, Paul says, you're not completely denying yourself. You're not throwing yourself under the bus, but it's not just your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And now here's the example in verse five of Philippians two, have this mind among yourself. So it's one mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then Paul goes on to describe how, God, how Jesus, being God, very God, laid it aside in his humility and took up the cross so that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. So our model of humility is Jesus Christ. We think of others as more significant than ourselves. And we, with sober judgment, measure who we are. The early church latched on to this. Uh, you, you, you're hearing from Paul, but James, our Lord's half-brother, he heard the words of his brother. And James, in James 4, 6, he would write, God opposes the proud, but what does he do? He gives grace to the humble. Peter also, you know, the inner circle. So you've got Paul following the model of Jesus. You've got James following the model of Jesus. And Peter, not to be outdone, writes in 1 Peter 5, 5, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. And then he quotes the exact same expression that James does. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So here we are with the clothing again. And I, I, I ask you to take this vivid illustration to heart. When you go into your sock drawer, or when you go into your closet, you pull out a shirt, think of yourself with a renewed mind that I'm putting on humility. I took this shirt out of the closet just a couple of hours ago, and I put it on. I try to remind myself that this, this shirt on the inside here has a little tag that says humility. I mean, it doesn't literally, but I try to do that in my mind so that I'm putting on humility so that when I either face people in, in, in a live audience or I'm talking to them on camera like I am right now, I'm thinking of you as more significant than me. How then can I serve you? How can I serve my wife and my daughter? How can I serve the body of Christ and those around me and vice versa? How can you serve me? That we're going to talk a whole lot more about when we look next week, God willing, at what it means to be a member of one another. So Paul's message, the grace-filled apostle who's speaking to everyone, his message is not to think highly of more highly than he ought to think, but, and here's his pivot as we wind down our time together here today, but, and it's a strong pivot, it's not, it's not weak here, Paul's saying not that, but this, to think with sober judgment, literally in a sober thinking way. So he's, he's piling up these mind words, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. And Paul gives us a sobering standard by which to measure ourselves, by which to think properly. So instead of thinking of ourselves uh, as high and mighty and status conscious, he's saying, no, don't think of yourself too high. Instead, 
be sober. We, we know the difference between being sober and being drunk, even if you've never been drunk in your life. You've seen pictures, you've seen movies with drunks in them. Drunks don't know how to act. They don't know how to act rationally. They don't know how to think rightly of themselves. And Paul brings out vivid language here, soberly, seriously, with your mind, give thought, but give thought to the way that he, he's presenting it right here in the book of Romans. We talk an awful lot about our identity in Jesus Christ. We're the apple of his eye. We're adopted children. We've been justified. We're on the way uh, to our full adoption and our presence with our older brother, Jesus Christ, for all of eternity. He loves us and has given his life for us. We are holy and pleasing in his sight. This is the people that we are. And in light of that personhood, we can think of ourselves rightly. Is this true about me? Are those lies? What is, what is it that I have to hold on to? What is it that I can release? Paul says, humility, sober thinking. And how do I measure that? Is it subjective? How, whatever I think is right, whatever my spouse thinks is right, whatever my best friend thinks is right. God's very plain on this here, though the measure of faith of which Paul speaks here in verse three can be an individual's faith, I don't think the context allows that. Instead, I, I think it's an objective standard of the lordship of Jesus so that everybody has to measure themselves, if you please, uh, to the same standard. It's not, well, I'm going to measure myself against myself or I'm against my neighbor who's a real scoundrel, so I'm better than him, so that puts me in a little bit of a better place. See what you're doing? That's not acting out of humility. That's putting somebody down that you might feel elevated. Instead, what, what Paul is saying here is, no, no. The status the against which we measure ourselves is Jesus Christ. And so we ask ourselves a rather humbling question. When, when the standard is Jesus, how am I doing? Not meant to put you down, not meant to induce false guilt. But when we compare ourselves to Jesus, we know that we will fall short, meaning we'll be kept humble. It doesn't mean we'll be kept down because we're lifted up by Christ. We're in Christ. When the Father sees us, his children, he sees Jesus. That ought to humble us. How? How, when that reality sinks deep into our very souls, how could we possibly be proud? How could we possibly be thinking that we're better than another person when we've been rescued by God's grace? He chose me. I did not choose him. I was his enemy. And he came even while we were enemies and gave himself for us. So the standard is Jesus, not my next door neighbor. If we proclaim that Jesus is Lord, as we must, remember, Paul said that in Romans 10, 8 and 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and what? Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So that, there's our standard. If that is our standard by which our lives are measured, how then can you and I not be humble? Where then, as Paul asks in Romans 3.27, where then is boasting? How can a Christian possibly be known for boasting, except, as we saw in 2 Corinthians, except in his weakness? A prideful Christian is an oxymoron. We should not be a community that is marked by pride. Instead, we should be a community that is marked by humility. 
submission to one another in obedience to Jesus Christ. So that's Romans chapter 12 and verse 3. Paul introduces the first theme of two, personal humility. And Pastor Paul is going to continue his gracious guidance in the application of this. It's going to sound like this. Personal humility is the way to corporate unity. Now, if you write that down, you'll be well along our introduction to next week's time of teaching, because the theme that we'll deal with next week in verses 4 to 8 of Romans chapter 12 is that very statement. Personal humility is the way to corporate unity. In other words, personal humility is proven in relationship to one another. I can't sit here in my office and say, I am humble with just me and my books. No, the way that my humility, if I have it, is proven is by relationship to other people, people in the body of Christ and people in my neighborhood and people in my family. Anybody I rub shoulders with, my humility will be made evident or my lack of humility will be made evident. It has been very well said that uh, the way to know that you are a true servant of God is how you respond when you're treated like one. That's always been a helpful thing for me to keep in mind because when I've been treated like a servant, when I've been treated like a slave, I've thought, wait, I'm better than this. I don't deserve this kind of treatment. And it reminds me that, hmm, maybe there are things going on in my heart that still need some work because here comes, here comes my pride defending myself and saying, you can't treat me like this. Obviously, in certain contexts, we should not be treated in particular ways. But if we're treated like a servant, if we're persecuted for the gospel of Jesus Christ, then that's a badge of honor for you and for me. Leonard Bernstein, the, the great conductor of the Boston Symphony Orchestra for, for years, was asked one day uh, what, the, what the most difficult instrument was to play in an orchestra. And without hesitation, Bernstein said, that's easy, second fiddle. Uh, how wise and how insightful. It is, isn't, is it not, isn't the instrument second fiddle the most difficult one to play? I, I leave that, uh, that instrument, if you please, uh, in your minds. And we'll come back to that, uh, God willing, next week. Michael Bird, who I opened uh, my uh, teaching time with this morning, also says this as we close together this morning. Gospel transformation requires a modest view of self and a generous view of others. Isn't that great? The transformed mind, the renewed mind, requires a modest view of self and a generous view of others. My, 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 how transformative that reality would be if you and I took the teaching of the Apostle Paul to heart. Next week, if the good Lord is willing, we will learn that we are one body in Christ, and that personal humility is the way to corporate unity. Would you pray together with me? Father, how we thank you for this beautiful word. In one verse, dear God, you teach us so much, and you call us to a Christ-like life. We're so glad that this is in Romans 12, where Romans 1 to 11 is already behind us, and the mercies of God have been made abundantly clear to us. Father, by the mercies of God, would you minister to us even in this hour and in the week to come? Would you make us humble, Father, plain and simple? 
Would you make us humble? And would you help us to have modest views of self and more generous views of others, particularly within the body of Christ, where if you're willing and you reassemble us next week, we will be able to learn that personal humility is indeed the way to corporate unity and that we are indeed one body in Christ. Together with that body, my dear brothers and sisters, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.